Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week we interviewed Dr. Bob Haig and discussed his role as CEO of the Ontario Chiropractic Association and how they disseminate guidelines and research to their members. This week we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Peter Stilwell, a chiropractor in Halifax, who is also a PhD student at Dalhousie University and co-leader of the Nova Scotia Practice-Based Research Network. Before we speak with Peter, Kent and I would like to discuss the Practice-Based Research Network, or PBRN, program. So Kent, uh, why don't you tell me a bit about why the PBRNs were created? Well, the PBRNs came about to, to sort of create some opportunities for the profession to improve interdisciplinary research collaboration and help facilitate evidence-based practice. These efforts have sometimes been hampered by issues such as fragmented integration of chiropractic into the healthcare system, it's, especially since most chiropractors are still in private practice. And that means that there can be suboptimal coordination of implementing evidence into practice. So the PBRNs help fill the evidence practice gap and they get clinicians involved in research and hopefully help make research relevant to clinicians. Uh, great. I mean, I'd imagine most chiropractors haven't heard of PBRNs, these practice-based research networks. Um, so tell me a bit about what they are. Well, the PBRN, it's, it's really a collaborative effort. It's, it's supposed to bring researchers and clinicians together. And so they get to work together towards a, closing that gap between research and practice. So a chiropractor with a PhD or PhD student, student like, like Peter Stilwell, they'll lead each PR, PBRN, and these groups will work toward improving health ser- service delivery and implementing research into practice. Their goals are to create research that reflects the context of healthcare practice in a primary care setting. The CCGI provided some seed funding for three PBRN startups in uh, around the country in 2016, and awarded a couple a couple of other PBRNs in March 2017. And there's currently a, a call for call for applications for another round. Great, that's a, a good backgrounder. Um, let's get started with our interview. Um, we'll introduce Dr. Peter Stilwell. So, um, he he his educational background includes a, a bachelor in kinesiology from the University of Calgary, doctor of chiropractic from CMCC. Uh, and a Master of Science from, in Rehabilitation Research from Dalhousie University. He's been practicing in Halifax, Nova Scotia for the past four years and is currently in the PhD in Health Program at Dalhousie. He helps lead the Nova Scotia PBRN and a free community-based exercise and knowledge translation program focused on pain. So Peter, what, what can you tell us about the Nova Scotia PBRN? Uh, what, what kinds of projects is your group working on right now? All right. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. So um, I just want to say I'm really impressed with the CCGI so far. And I think uh, having you two as knowledge brokers is a, a huge step forward. Um, so thanks for that. Well, um, thank you. In terms of the, the Nova Scotia PBRN, so we're a group of about 25 practicing chiropractors that are interested in participating in research or staying up to date with research and, and clinical practice guidelines. So uh, so far, we've completed one kind of small research project that looked at chiropractors' uh, awareness of clinical practice guidelines for low back pain. Um, the great thing about that study as well, um, we also explored the barriers and facilitators to screening and managing psychosocial factors in patients with low back pain. Um, so that study's all complete now, and, and in terms of what we're currently working on, uh, we're working on a really interesting study actually exploring how chiropractors in Nova Scotia 
uh, actually communicate and interact with their patients experiencing low back pain. Uh, we have received support from the CCGI, um, so that's really what makes these, these research studies happen. Well, that's great. So how, how would you say your PBRN engages those, those clinicians who are involved, you know, the 25 clinicians who are involved? How does it get them engaged in research and, and using evidence in their practices? All right. Um, well, our, I guess our studies always uh, include chiropractors. So I think it's pretty straightforward to get uh, clinicians involved as research participants. Uh, in terms of the benefit of, of getting involved, I guess the chiropractors get to reflect on their own clinical practice. Um, I get there's also knowledge translation components after the studies. So, for example, at the end of our last study, we put on a workshop. So we reviewed, okay, what are clinical practice guidelines and how can they be used? Um, and actually, some of the content did come straight from the CCGI, which was great. Uh, we also gave chiropractors that were involved evidence-based tools to help them screen and manage psychosocial factors in their patients with low back pain. Uh, Thinking of other kind of benefits, um, I guess the participants get to interact with each other as we have discussions, so that social aspect as well. Um, and, our, and our PBRN is still relatively new, so we're still trying to figure out the best way to get, uh, like, I guess, stay connected and, and really move research into practice on a larger scale. So in terms of moving forward, uh, the plan is to kind of open up these workshops to more clinicians, and, and I'd like to see it include even those that are a bit more weary of research or clinical practice guidelines and and are still interested in, in kind of learning, learning more. Uh, I'm still kind of, I'm relatively new as well to Nova Scotia, so uh, just kind of figuring out the landscape as well. And uh, I think we can disseminate research and clinical practice guidelines here in really a, a non-threatening way uh, and, and dispel some of those myths at the same time. So I guess, for example, letting clinicians know that, that these clinical practice guidelines, they're really tools, not rules, and, and slowly exposing clinicians to research and, and evidence-based practices. Well, it's great how you're doing that in a collaborative way that, that uh, engages clinicians, especially given how many of us practice in, uh, in, you know, in, some, in some ways our own silos and not all of us are in uh, multidisciplinary clinics, so that's, that's a great uh, tool for them to use. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to shift it, but you know, reading your bio, it looks like you've been really busy these days. Um, how, much, how much time in a week are you currently seeing patients, and how do you balance that with your PhD studies? Because I know there are a few uh, you know, PhD uh, chiropractic, uh, uh, chiropractors out there. Yeah, uh, it's it's a, a challenge. Um, I probably work more than I than I should um, in terms of seeing patients, and I think it, it's always a challenge to be a clinician and, and being involved in some sort of graduate program at the same time. Uh, you have all these different kind of roles, I guess, as a, a graduate student. So I sit on committees, I gaining a lot of experience teaching, like interdisciplinary type of teaching. Uh, I volunteer, I'm at conferences and seminars. Um, and then you have your kind of research and writing commitments on top of that. And, and then you throw in a, a chiropractic residency in the mix if you really want to suffer. Um, 
But, but I guess in terms of balance, so when I transitioned to the PhD program, I did shift my license to part-time. So uh, I've been seeing patients about 15 hours a week. Um, it can get pretty gnarly to fit everything in, but really that's to be expected. Uh, I think everybody's scenario is a little bit different too. So my partner's in graduate school now too, which I think in a sense makes things a bit easier. So she uh, she fully understands the the challenges, and we try to balance things together and and still having fun at the same time. Oh, misery loves company, right? Yeah, I think that's the concept, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, something else we thought the listeners would be interested in is is uh, hearing your process for exercise prescription to patients with chronic low back pain, and and how do you decide which exercise to include, and and how do you actually prescribe and reinforce them? Yeah, uh, that's a, a really great question. I think it's complex as well. Um, I'll, tr- I'll try my best here to provide a little bit of insight in terms of how I, I think about exercise prescription. And um, if I get kind of rambling too much, just cut me off. But I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a, an overview of the best I can. Uh, I guess first off, I haven't been in practice that long as a, as a chiropractor, so I'm constantly refining my approaches. And uh, as new evidence comes out, um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to tailor things a little bit. So I guess that's one thing to consider. Um, also, my approach is, a, is essentially a synthesis of what others have already developed. So uh, not just in, in, in chiropractic, uh, way outside of that. So especially in the field of psychology. So for the last century, they've been doing these types of things that I'll, I'll maybe d- allude to. So really, I, I would say my approach isn't really that novel per se. Uh, I guess a good way to kind of start would be going into maybe a bit of the research. So um, at this point in time, there's really no strong and consistent literature to support the long-term effectiveness of one form of exercise over another for, for chronic low back pain. So when we look at the studies, like this includes a comparison of programs focused on general exercise or low back strengthening, increasing flexibility, improving motor control, other things like Pilates or yoga or all these different types of aerobic exercises. And also, uh, I guess something to consider would be there's studies out there demonstrating that treatment effects, they're not directly attributable to things like muscle strength or mobility or, or muscular endurance. So I think that that really challenges a lot of the traditional approaches to exercise prescription and beliefs about the mechanisms of exercise for, for low back pain. And at this point, I, I don't think, well, at least I don't, I don't think we really understand how exercise works for low back pain, uh, but it does appear to be very multidimensional in nature. Uh, in terms of also, I guess we're talking research here. So the literature also tells us that adherence to prescribed exercise is pretty horrible. Um, we, if we if we look at it, like upwards of like seventy percent of people aren't really adhering to the exercises that they're prescribed, and we know that you really need to engage in exercise to get the benefits out of it. Uh, and I, and I think the literature also is telling us other things. So many people don't adhere to exercises because they're they're fearful of injury or pain. That's a, especially important in in individuals that are having persistent low back pain. So. I think especially in that that qualitative literature, patients are describing their backs as fragile or broken or prone to damage. Not everyone, but but a lot of people are. Um, 
And I think this can really impact exercise engagement and activities of daily living. And, and I really wonder, okay, what, what really drives this? And I think a big factor maybe promoting these beliefs is our culture and maybe practitioners unknowingly, I guess, body shaming patients. <laughs> I've, I've heard Dr. Sean Thistle uh, <laughs> use that term body shaming. And I, I think it actually is, is, is accurate, right, or, or pretty spot on. Um, so I guess changing gears a little bit. So how would I prescribe exercise for, for patients with persistent low back pain? Uh, I guess first off the patient has to be open to it. So, so that would come out in their history. Um, next I would find out what their goals are. So I would then take movements that are really inherent in their goals and use them as targets. Um, so I probably using an example would be good. Um, let's say a patient has a goal of like wanting to play with their kids or something that involves some sort of bending or twisting and they haven't really bent over like forward bended and, and without severe pain and let's say like eight months so in a case like that lumbar flexion would probably be be a target for me at least um so where would i start so using things like pain education, especially if they're, they're fear avoidant. So discussing things like hurt versus harm, uh, facilitating some form of, a, I guess, what we could call like a cognitive restructuring. Uh, I would also give them permission to start to move and work towards their goals. So I've heard other clinicians say this, and I think it can be huge actually just saying, okay, well, you can actually start to work towards these things and, and, and not placing a lot of restrictions on them. Um, because I, I, I do think many clinicians are kind of fear avoidant and this can transfer to their patients and and there is evidence out there supporting this so I guess I would do the opposite so uh, I'm constantly telling patients that motion is lotion their back is strong stable and adaptable but it, it can get very sensitive um, in terms of next steps so I would start to get people doing uh, a graded exposure to movements in, in maybe novel ways. So I guess my goal would be to, to decouple that, that pain and, uh, and that movement, right? So maybe I would start through a variety of, I guess we could call it like behavioral type of experiments. So uh, for example, using that scenario where somebody's been maybe avoiding flexion for, I think I said eight months, um, maybe getting them in, in, in a position, maybe a lateral recumbent position and getting them to start to do movements in non-threatening ways, so flexing their hips, ultimately flexing their low back. And I think, I think when they realize they actually can start to flex without significant pain, um, then we can start to step it up, moving up a hierarchy of, of maybe feared movements. So uh, in a sense, I guess I'd be violating their expectations that flexion might be bad or that it'll, it'll always hurt or, or maybe they have the fear that it'll, it'll damage their spine. Um, then we'd progress it uh, over time. So maybe doing something like cat camels and, and, and finally progressing to that standing flexion and, and fully playing with their, with their kids, if that's maybe their goal. Uh, in terms of other things that I, I would be doing, I'd, I'd probably maybe build in like gentle flexion exercises into their daily life um, and, and maybe getting them to do breathing techniques with that as well. So I'd essentially be getting them to do their activities of daily living that maybe they've been avoiding. So using those as, as specific exercises. Um, I guess other th important things that we could talk about, uh, 
I think we need to be cognizant of mechanical factors and different forms of of sensitization. So uh, I think a graded approach really makes sense to me, and the, and the literature is, is supporting this because it does give a person time to adapt. Um, we we would never just drive into pain because I, I think in many cases that's just going to make things worse. So. I think anatomy and physiology and biomechanics do definitely come into play. Um, but but I guess that said, I, I, I'm still pushing the patient forward. So I'd still be getting them to edge or, or nudge into their pain and, and, and giving them some freedom and, and doing this at their discretion. And and if things go awry and, and they get kind of caught into that boom-bust cycle, maybe things are consistently flaring up. I would probably have a, a conversation about pacing activities and, and see if they're they're actually open open to that. Um, moving kind of moving forward, I guess as the patient gets closer to their their functional goals, if we're going to maybe call it that, um, then I would probably start to have more conversations about what activities they previously enjoyed, so what exercises they previously enjoyed. Or what maybe exercises they're interested in in, in in exploring as they move forward now that they're they're feeling better, uh, and then we move towards just getting them to do more of that long term if they're not doing a lot of exercise. And I think I think it's crazy how relieved a lot of patients are when they find out they don't have to do a bunch of planks. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, because I, I like they're like oh I, I can actually do something that i find is enjoyable and that's backed by by research i think that that really throws people off um i i i don't i don't think planks are inherently bad like if people want to do planks like go ahead and, and do them like uh, i would just be hesitant maybe to prescribe them if the person is if, is ridiculously stiff or appears that way and and is guarding a lot i I think of Peter O'Sullivan, Professor Peter O'Sullivan, talking about how planks are fine. Just maybe don't walk around like a plank. Uh, <laughs> I yeah. I think it's 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 sad to see when like patients walk into clinics and they and they're walking like a plank. And unfortunately, I think whether they see a chiropractor or a physiotherapist or med- medical doctor, I think sometimes they can get descriptions of their back or di- diagnoses that essentially relaying the message that they're prone to damage and then moving forward the prescribed exercise to further stiffen up and further brace and uh, I really just don't see how that's helpful compared to maybe approaches that are are goal driven or or potentially more more empowering um so I guess my what I what I just kind of described I think it does have aspects of of kind of existing programs, so things like cognitive cognitive functional therapy or, or CFT. So, if any listeners are interested in that and want to look that up, I think there's been a few studies now supporting its use, and it does look quite quite promising, I guess, from my perspective. Um, but I think it, it it depends on the the patient. So, I, I do use other techniques. Uh, for example, it's not uncommon for me to use like neural dynamics or McKenzie type protocols if it really helps the patient feel better um and I and I think I I gotta admit too like in retrospect like reflecting on the past and how I've prescribed exercise like I haven't been in practice that long and I, I look back at some of the stuff I've done and I think I've unintentionally prescribed a lot of exercises that maybe have been fear eliciting 
and I'm trying to maybe learn from those mistakes. Uh, and I think most of us have done that, right? And uh, I, I think I'm just really trying to reflect on that and do better moving forward. And as I read more and, and more research keeps coming out, I'm just trying to adapt and do what's what's best for the patients and ultimately helping them reach their goals. So uh, I know I've been kind of rambling away for, for a while here, so I'll, I'll summarize a little bit what, what I'm trying to trying to express. Uh, so I guess the main thing is just trying to empower patients. So letting them know that their back is, is often a lot stronger or more stable and adaptable than maybe they, they might think. Um, but it can get, get quite sensitive and I don't see uh, really huge long-term benefits in telling people that their back is unstable or misaligned or really pathologizing their condition. I, I think moving forward as we're empowering them and once we get close to achieving their maybe their specific movement-based goals, we just find exercises that they enjoy um, and giving them, giving them the option to do that long-term. And I think at that point, you don't really need to enforce like these leisure activities because people oftentimes will enjoy them and I think they just need a little bit of guidance. Um, it, but it, everybody's different, right? And if I am worried about I guess, long-term adherence, I'll, I'll schedule follow-ups um, and we'll, we'll work on it. And I might be using kind of specific behavior change techniques uh, at those points in time. And I, I guess maybe I'll leave it at that. So yeah. there's kind of a, just a, a general overview. I think things do change though. So if you talk to me in a year, I might disagree with some of the things that I just said. So maybe keep that in mind. Things are are flexible. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, that that just uh, reinforces the, the the self-reflection that is important in practice. And I mean, there's so many nuggets. I think our listeners can draw from from everything you just said, whether it's uh, the exercise themselves or, or language that we use in practice. Um, we we will have to wrap it up. Although we could probably talk for a couple hours on this topic, it feels like. Um, yeah. Um, really, we, we want to thank you for your time, Peter. Really appreciate it. You know, especially given how busy you are and. Uh, we're really happy to have you with us today. Um, for, for for the listeners, um, you know, this is that time of the show where we're going to ask you for a favor. Uh, we'd like you to take five minutes out of your day and, and visit the CCGI website. Uh, visit chiroguidelines.org to access all of the CCGI resources and look for tools that can enhance your practice and benefit your patients. If you're curious about PBRNs, then contact the CCGI so that we can connect you with a PBRN in your area. Uh, we'd just like to say thanks again for tuning in. Uh, we look forward to bringing you our next, next guest in two weeks, which will be Dr. Ayla Azad, uh, president of the Ontario Chiropractic Association. Uh, that promises to be another entertaining and informative show. Bye for now.